everybody. I'm Dale Sparagi, love and relationship coach and host of this podcast, New Wave Relationships, about all things relationships, relationship to self, others more than other, couples, singles, breakups, and dating. What's new in relationships and how relationships are changing and evolving especially post-COVID, post-digital, post-Me Too, and sadly to say, post-No-Roe versus Wade. So we're talking about finding love and losing love, creating lasting love and lifestyle. I'm thinking of this as a forum for relationships. So please, if you have any burning questions, send them in. Or here's something novel. If you'd like some coaching, if you're struggling with something in your relationship and you'd be willing to do the session here so others can benefit, please email me at dale at creativeportcoaching.com. Hello, everybody. This is your co-host and producer, Sunny Hibbets. Don't forget that we post our episodes bi-monthly on the second and fourth Friday of every month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For updates on the show, please consider following us on Instagram and Facebook at New Wave Relationships Podcast. On this episode of the New Wave Relationships Podcast, we will have special guest Gary Katz, who is the director and founder of the Center of Intimacy Recovery in New York City. He specializes in intimacy, trauma, and addiction therapies and counseling. With his extensive team of therapists, Dale and I think the Center of Intimacy Recovery is changing lives and maybe even the world. Please find more about his work on his website at intimacyrecovery.com. Hi, guys. Thank you for being here. Super excited to have this conversation going coast to coast right now because we have Gary on the East Coast in New York and we're near San Francisco. So thanks for making the time, Gary. Really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. I so appreciate the two of you having me here. Thank you. Gary, we're, we're, yeah, we're so excited to have you and, and we've been trying to get you here. We know with the holidays and um, schedules and so it's just so great that we're finally here having this conversation. Yeah, I find that the things are meant to be, they usually work out schedule-wise eventually. Right. So just to start us off, um, I would just love to start with a kind of a basic definition of intimacy. A hundred percent. Well, I'm sure that there are many people who define it in many ways, but I can tell you what I mean when I say it, right? Like to me, intimacy means the ability to open myself up to know myself, to be willing to see all the parts of myself and look at them, even the ones I don't like, like not just the ones I post on social media to show the world and want to highlight, but even the parts of myself that in the middle of the night, I don't even, you know, like that come out, I don't even want to see myself, let alone show other people. And so our brains are so powerful in our nervous system too, that we actually have the ability to hide information from ourselves. If it feels too overwhelming, especially as a child, or even as an adult, if it feels too painful, our brains have this amazing ability to take some information and tuck it away somewhere. So it's like in an extreme form, like it doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. And so that's like the mechanism that I'm sure you both know of like, of denial, right? When someone's like, Hey, you have a problem drinking you're an alcoholic. No, I'm not. Like I never drink. How can this person as the bottles are like clinking out of their jacket pocket, so to speak, be saying, I don't have a problem. It's too painful for them to acknowledge it. And so that's like an extreme version, but we all have parts. There's many other versions of denial that aren't as like black and white, but some people might call them blind spots. We all have moments as we mature that more blind spots get revealed to us, either through our internal growth and realization or someone, you know, we're lucky enough to have someone point them out to us um, and let us know. But also through minimizing, we all have things that we're like, oh, it's not that bad, right? Like I like to spend money and shop 
but it's not that bad. But when I see my credit card bill, all of a sudden that denial gets broken because I see it in front of me. So minimizing serves as the, is a, is a form of denial. So of course it's a basic need for all of us to feel good about ourselves. That's, you know, as we move through the world, I have a narrative of like, I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. I'm a good woman. We all, as part of being human, are messy and we do things that hurt people and hurt ourselves and are embarrassing and are faux pas, private or public. And so to keep that narrative of feeling good about ourselves going, we often have to push away all of the the mistakes that we make or the mean, petty, messy things that we might do to others to keep that narrative going. And so intimacy to me means I can see all these parts of myself. I don't have to like them all. You know, like if I was a bully in elementary school, I wasn't. I was the guy who got picked on, but um, I have plenty of ones that I'm, I, I do have. Uh, but if I was a bully in elementary school and now I see like that wasn't a cool thing, it was actually really harmful to some kids, I can feel bad about that and like even cringe when I think about it. But I can know and own that I did that. Mm-hmm. And still be okay. Because that one thing, like the worst thing I've ever done, doesn't define, I hope it doesn't define me for all of us. Mm. It's the ability to see the good and the bad and the ugly within myself. And the reason that's so important is number one, is all those things sometimes drive how we act on a subconscious level. Um, and when we're not really aware of all of our parts and our, that we do, then I'm likely to repeat the ones I don't want to do also. But the other thing that's really important, this is where it comes into a more traditional thing, because when normally when we think of intimacy, we think of two people. The way it relates to that is that if I can't be intimate with myself and I can't look at things within myself, I sure as hell am not going to let you. Because mm-hmm. if it's so ugly and abhorrent to me that I did or do this thing, how can I let you in? Because you will totally, re- I reject this part of me, so you're going to reject me too. Wow. Wow. That's really deep. And it feels like if, if we're not honest with ourselves and in touch with ourselves, that, that we're at, that we're not true to our, to who we are, which, which feels like that's intimacy. So if we can be true with ourselves, that, and share that with someone else. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful definition. And, and the, and these protector parts of us that keep the the pain under wraps that keep secrets that we don't want people to know about us kind of keep our real self from not only ourselves but each other is that cool i love how you said dale like that word protector parts cuz that mechanism of denial which can create so much pain in the world and internally if I'm not, you know, because I keep doing things that hurt myself and others by not really seeing myself, the intention is still good to save myself from pain. Mm. So all these things, you know, all these behavior, most behaviors that we do start as adaptive, self-protective behaviors, and then can morph into maladaptive, harmful behaviors. From a very vulnerable place, those things arise. Right. And um, I think it's so important for people to have compassion with themselves, with those parts, because then you just get in shame loops really bad. And it's interesting where I'm hearing what you're saying about what intimacy is. I feel like I'm also hearing you just straight up talk about trauma, which is true. And it's funny when you think of intimacy, you think of like, oh, two people in love and it's so happy. But the way you're talking about it is how it's connected to trauma. Am I right? In a way, yeah. You know, Look, there's definitely people who have had horrific trauma experiences as children or adults. And I think as a culture and a community in a world, we're understanding the impact of trauma more than ever. It may have even in some worlds crossed the tipping point where it's overused. You know, I didn't get the, I had to sit in the middle seat on the airplane. It was so traumatic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I, for, for a whole hour and a half, like I couldn't believe it. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, exaggerating, but we've all used the or we've heard the word used too much. It it almost in a way takes away the power of trauma, and so there's definitely what the people will call capital T traumas, like big events like abuse, 
PTSD, things from veterans, uh, assault, like terrible, terrible things. But the majority of people, what they come in for is what we call relational trauma. Mm-hmm. You weren't hit. You weren't sexually abused. You weren't in a war zone. You weren't assaulted or raped. But so there was a rupture, usually in a child state at a young age, intended or unintended, doesn't really matter because it's what the child internalized and it became painful. And it's a health, it's part of our survival mechanism is to get out of pain. So whatever I can do to learn how not to be in that situation again, I'm going to learn how to do. So if I have, let's say, a parent who rages unexpectedly, bursts into rages, as a child, that feels painful and scary at that moment when that happens. So I'm going to learn, all right, what are the rules? How do I, what are, what are the signals? I, how do I read the room? I'm going to learn how to read the room really well. Like a hyper hyper vigilance, right? I'm going to be like, I'm going to be really good Yeah. on a date or in a therapy session or in a crowd. I'm going to pick out people right away, know what's going on for them. What's going on, Sonny? I don't understand. What's going on? <laughs> That's so good. Ah. Oh. Man, Garrett, you have hypervigilance. That's what hypervigilance is, right? So, I'm going to do whatever I can. And kids, our brains, our nervous systems, even as children, we're so smart. We so maybe what I'm going to be is daddy's little girl or daddy's little boy who's really good. Yeah, I'm going to be the goodest I can be, and so I'm going to do well in school. Or I'm going to, I'm not going to make a peep at home. I'm going to get quiet. I'm going to pull back. And that's a, a, an adaptive way to feel safe. And what I said before about maladaptive, maybe I'm going to do so well in school. That's where, and I get esteem from that. And people are like, wow, you're such a great student. And it minimizes the amount of anger, the explosiveness. And I'm going to do well. And it, that's all great. It's serving me well. And then maybe I'm burning out. Or maybe I'm ignoring my family or my emotional life or my relationship life. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes maladaptive when someone's saying, hey, spend time with us. We love you. We want you at home. I'm like, I got to be at the office. Sorry. And I would think there would, that that would be painful. So is that kind of when people come to you when they, when they have been in these maladaptive patterns and they're, they're realizing the impact that it's having on their intimacy? Is that kind of when they, they reach out for you? Uh, yeah, or when someone tells them. We're at a breaking point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One of those. Um, yeah. You know, we should all be internally motivated all the time. No, I don't think none of us are motivated internally all the time. Sometimes we need an external circumstance or impact. They're like, wow, I really love this woman. And she's telling me that she's lonely in our, in our relationship. I don't want her to feel like that. Hmm. Or, um, you know, I'm seeing my kids grow up in front of me and I'm clocking the most hours in my firm, but I'm, I kind of long for my kids and they're, they're telling me to spend more time with me, spend more time with me. So it can go either way. So you work with so many different types of specialties and different people in your recovery center. And just to list some of those really quick, just to, I just want to kind of let my audience know more about you is you have people who work in sex addiction, betrayal trauma, women, love addiction, intimacy disorders, codependency trauma, PTSD, and pornographic addiction. And that's a lot of different things in, you know, what we're talking about. And it seems like your program's about intimacy and recovery. So it's connecting on those things. Could you tell me a bit more about your credentials, your background in the work and who you are just to give more of a kind of background? Sure. I just feel that who I am is so boring compared to what we were just talking about and to all that good <laughs> stuff. But yeah, hundred percent. Just want to give a, just a little, just a little bit. That's it's fine. I'm just being playful. All those things that you read just now, Sonny, a lot of them are ways that people develop these strategies to avoid intimacy. Right. Um, that's what you were reading. And there's some more too, but, but they're all to me ways that that we get in the way of intimacy or we let get in the way of intimacy. So for me, um, uh, I was in education for over 20 years. Also uh, became a rabbi at 22. Spent seven years in rabbinical school in Jerusalem, Israel, and felt like called to work with people in part because of beautiful, wonderful people who worked with me and different forms, teachers, mentors, uh, spiritual leaders, and Maybe also a way to avoid myself, too, a little. Um, and so going into the rabbinate and going into education really felt like a calling to help other people. And I related well to kids. Mm-hmm. 
And I did that for a long time. During that time, had my own internal struggles with addiction and recovery and, and getting sober. And that journey led me to developing an entire different relationship spiritually than what I had, including a different relationship with Judaism that was different than I had been ordained. And it wasn't about right, what's the right or wrong way. It's just what felt authentic for me. Um, and my income was dependent on that. It's one thing to be an accountant and kind of have a exploration of identity and faith and what and authenticity. Um, that's what I was going to say earlier just quickly is I think authenticity would be synonymous with intimacy is the way we're talking about intimacy. For me, all of therapy and recovery and all of this stuff is really learning about how to be authentic to oneself, which in other words is how to be intimate with oneself and true to it, you know? So I reached a stage, it took me a long time, like seven years, to be honest with myself that I didn't want to stay connected as a rabbi to Judaism in the ways that I had previously. Not because I thought it was bad or anything, I was angry at it, and I, I had and still have a tremendous love for all of it, but it just felt a different way was better. And I was now in a difficult position because my income was dependent on it. And I was in a very, you know, structured community, which I loved in a lot of ways, but it was hard. So I looked for something else to do. And at first it was running a summer camp for older adults, like kind of like a elder hostel type program, which Dale, you may know, Sonny, I don't know if you know, but it was like these things that um, they had up until about 20 years ago where people who were retired could go to colleges or other places in the country and take courses off semester and stuff. So it was great. Like my grandparents went and did all these wonderful, you know, to go touring, sightseeing and learn. And it was really a beautiful thing. And I think it kind of it still exists, but it's not as popular as it used to be. Mm -hmm. So I ran a summer camp like that for 80, 80 and 90 year olds, which was a blast. Um, and I looked at going back to, to going back to school for social work, um, because even while I was teaching, I was feeling like I saw kids in class that reminded me of me. Wow. That I could see that there was stuff on their, in their face. I could see that they couldn't learn. That was, it was getting in the way, something emotional. And, you know, and I couldn't, I didn't have the tools to really help them. I could care for them. I cared for them and I would make space and talk to them. And, but I didn't know how to help them. And I also, I had to cover curriculum and I didn't have the time or the structure to really, you know, I could get them support, but I couldn't do that myself. And so, and that's how I felt in school, that there was so much going on emotionally. I wasn't able to really focus on the learning because I was just like hurting. I didn't know it, but I was hurting. A long story, but eventually I went back to graduate school, got a master's in social work. The first place I interned was Jewish Board of Family Ch Children's Services here in New York City. Um, and they have a program for that was created in the 80s when it was like, foreign for Jews to acknowledge addiction and alcoholism. It was like a taboo. So this was a breakthrough program that had gotten much smaller over time because there was less of a taboo, although it still can exist. But it was a wonderful experience. And then the second year I interned at a place that dealt with sexual addiction and, tra and sexual trauma, and it was a tremendous experience, and I worked there afterwards. So when I went to open my own practice, I, I th had all these life experiences and that I enjoyed, ranging from working with kids to working with older adults to work substance abuse to sexual addiction to all these things to, to working with the Jewish community. I kind of just threw them on the wall to see what would stick. And I learned quickly that I didn't want to work as a therapist for kids. That was the first thing I learned. I had some kids, wonderful kids, but it was a very different dynamic than being their teacher um, or a youth director or a counselor where what I needed to try to do to help them was very dependent on the environment that they were living. Wow. And so if I, if the parents were not going to also participate in the therapy, there was very limited like, amount I could do for the child. And so it's easier to, for some people in family dynamics to make the child, the identified problem. It's like, wow, this kid's acting out because kids have a, such a, beautifully strong barometer for truth and BS better than adults. And so the adults could fake these things and the kids are screaming, what the hell? And they're like doing it through acting out behaviors in school or at home. So that becomes the problem. And I had to 
really wonderful family. The, the parents brought the kid in who got busted in high school and lied about it. And they're so concerned about his lying. And I had to like tell the kid to go wait in the waiting room. And I'm like, guys, where do you think you learned the lying from? You're lying about your drug addiction. You're lying about this other thing that you do. Like just get off his case. If you want him to change, the change starts from within. And, you know, I love that kid and I love the parents, but I couldn't, it was too frustrating. Our practice really doesn't do it because of that reason. Yeah, that makes so much sense that the the kids would be the, the focus when all this stuff was going on with the parents. And so you, you, you have that sensitivity and realized you're going to go to the source of, of where these issues are coming from. And, and yeah, so that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you were talking about um, when people feel the impact of their lives on each other, that's when either they feel their own pain or their partner or someone they love is expressing the impact that they're having on them when they come and, and they see you. Yeah. Yeah. And when they do, what, what kinds of work do you do with people to, you know, to kind of get them to see what's going on with them? That's an excellent question. I don't know. Uh, let me think for a second, to be honest. Um, I think it depends what the, what's bringing them in. Yeah. Right. So sometimes it's pretty clear what's bringing them in. Life is blowing up. You know, let's say they were discovered by their partner for infidelities that existed the entire time of the relationship. So it's pretty clear. But I think it depends on what they're coming in for. But I really, you know, I think the first place I start with is I want them to feel seen and seen in the way that I would want to be seen, like not seen as whatever is bringing them into the office. And so I know for me, like if I close my eyes and pictured my most embarrassing moment or my most shameful act that I've done, that doesn't feel good. And so I wouldn't, you know, and then if everyone else sees me like that, that feels even worse. And if that's the only way that people see me through that lens, I feel, I, it, it makes me feel even worse than that. So when someone's coming into the, our, my office, to our offices in the practice, you know, with a certain issue, they're more than just the issue. That's just one piece of them. And even if they've done something that's really hurt someone else, and by the way, I believe that if I'm harming someone else, I'm harming myself too, right? Like it's not a healthy act to harm another person. So I think harming others is a form of self-harm too. Behaviors that are harming others hold us back from being our full selves and the beautiful people we can be. So it's self-harm. So I want them to, at the same time, I want them to know that I see a broader person and that's without flinching from whatever they're coming in for. If they feel really ugly or they feel ashamed of it, I can hold space. And if they can see me looking at them with care, compassion, nurturance, love, um, and understand that in a non-judgmental way, my hope is that's where I eventually want to get them to is to see themselves that way. And in the, in the process of that clean up, whatever that was that brought them there. So there's always in all therapy, like there's the presenting problem, like I'm coming in for anxiety. I'm not coming in for addiction. I'm coming in cause I'm depressed, you know, so that we all come in for a presenting problem. And then what usually happens in therapy is as we look at that presenting problem, it's like, it's the surface. That's why the, our logo is this tree that, you know, if a tree has an issue and the leaves at the top, we don't treat the leaves. I mean, you might treat them a little illness or the struggle is from the roots and in the trunk. Mm. That's what, exactly why it, that's our logo. So we have to deal with the behaviors that were the presenting problem or the attitudes. And that comes back to your question about trauma, Sonny, like, the root or the trunk is trauma-related responses. So trauma-related responses can range from so many things, some which are super self-destructive, like addiction or self-harm. But you can, trauma-related responses can also be anxiety, depression, or even do well for us. Like I said before, like excelling, perfectionism is a tra- can be a trauma-related response to feel safe until it's not. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> What's going on there with that? Every time we go, I mentioned that. I'm, uh, <laughs> you come, it's almost like you come to life in a way. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Yeah, I'm a hardcore perfectionist. I am a 3.9 GPA grad 
And I realized in college that that wasn't about like me wanting good grades. It was actually me being scared of failure. Mm. Um, and I one time had this funny thing in class, one time silly story is like my holistic health teacher, since that was my minor and I have my bachelor's in psychology, I'd tell them about it and we'd have conversations about it. I'm like, yeah, guys, I'm really trying to break this perfectionism. And they were like, well, do you, you study for your test? You always get A's. Why don't you just try a balling one? Why don't you just try to fail it? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I tried. I chose not to study. I got like a C or like a B on it. Right. And I was like, it, it was such a funny experience. And they're like, well, your grade didn't change, Sunny. So see ya. <laughs> but I, I'm always trying to practice like letting myself fail. But what was that like for you? I'm curious if it, can I ask? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you to not do, to not get like, it didn't impact your grade overall, right? Like, mm-mm. well, as you were like the night before the test and normally you'd be, you know, I imagine you had have your highlighter and your, mm-hmm. maybe your whiteout. I don't know. Maybe I'm dating myself and your little note things. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what was that? Like? Do you remember what it was like internally to be not doing that? Like, were you kicking it back totally chill and relaxed? I wish. Um, I can go back and remember. I um, I think that those tests were really hard. And it was, we would have to read these um, really nice books. Um, I forget the, I think the one for that class was um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. That was the one. And it's about like trauma. And I was reading it, so I knew about it because I liked it. But um. I, so that didn't count as studying because wait that didn't count as studying because you liked it is that right? not really because I liked it yeah but I did still have to study so then um, by not studying I would just like not do anything like I wouldn't I wouldn't read you know I I just like took that one test I'm like okay I'm just gonna like I'm gonna I'm gonna go chill and it was stressful to have to chill because I wasn't doing it I guess um, mm-hmm. yeah course and then once i saw the test back that it was a c i was like excited and disappointed because i think i really wanted to feel an f but i still like did pretty good um, it's funny but yeah i you gotta not study harder what's the matter with you not you know, i know i have to harder. i have to try to fail actually um yeah. but yeah i think that it's and i still struggle with it where it's um i always need to be like doing something or then I have to sit with myself and figure out what I like to do a lot. And like, that can be kind of hard. And I have all kinds of hobbies I like to do, but it's hard to like right. keep myself. I almost keep myself preoccupied in jobs or studying, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and my family has a workaholic history. So that's kind of where that comes from. Uh, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. So that's, I so appreciate your, you know, just sharing all that personal information. Thank yeah. you. And I really do. And like, it's such a perfect example because it was adaptive. Like it probably got, it's gotten you really good things. I, I used to joke with friends. Like if I have to hire someone, I want to hire perfectionists in some ways because you know, and people pleasers, cause then I'm always going to get what I want and they're going to work so hard. Yeah, and, no, no, it's worry. funny. It was, it was just, a joke. but at the same time, so it pays off. You get people appreciate you. They, if they, especially if they show it, you get, you feel self value. Um, you advance and you get esteem of others and probably maybe some for yourself from their esteem too. And then the maladaptive piece is what you're describing, which I so appreciate the honesty is like, it's hard to sit still. It's hard not to do. Right. So that's a perfect example of what we're studying and doing well isn't bad. Right. And it probably started out with really good intentions. And I think like if we can go back sometimes and try to understand the origins of our adaptive strategies and like, look at that little girl in this case, you know, who maybe learned in some situation to do really well. All of a sudden, that judgment we have for ourselves as the adult, for the negative, maladaptive parts of it, we can have more compassion for them. Because that little girl just probably wanted to feel okay. She needed to feel okay about herself because we all do. And so she found, she was clever and she found a way, even without studying, to feel better. So do you want me to give you the check for the therapy session now or later? Yeah, I was just going to say, are you going to book a session, Sonny? <laughs> I have a feeling this is not the first, based on your amount of self-disclosure, it's not the first podcast episode where some of this stuff has gotten discussed. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. Me and Dale are guilty of that. We, we have to practice a lot to be like, stay on topic, (laughs) stay on topic here. Breathe, breathe. Good time. This is fun. But we all do it. Well, I think that's why I asked it because I, um, you know, besides it, you know, you offered it, but it's exactly on topic. Right. And so intimacy, if we can use your example, Sonny, if you don't mind. Yeah, totally. Okay. So intimacy there would be like, Ooh, like, what, why is this? It's okay. It's uncomfortable. I don't have to judge myself, but when I'm not being productive, what's there for me? Who am I without my productivity? Am I worthy or lovable or worthy of, of value without accomplishing? And if not, what's the self-belief that I have that if I don't do or produce or create or whatever it would be? Yeah. What's my worth? Like, oh, because my guess is for me, when I I've, I identify with everything you said, is the self-belief of like, something's wrong with me unless I'm making people feel better. I mean, believe me, therapists, clergy, they're the, they figured out how to get, how to monetize avoiding themselves. Come on. Right. Like we figured out how to help others avoid our own crap and get paid for it. It's like the it's genius. So like, what am I avoiding with all the, especially if it's really busy and I have that discomfort at those moments, like there's some self belief that I think is true that really is painful. And, and you know what's interesting about what you're saying, Gary, is a lot of this gets revealed in relationship. Ugh. Like sometimes we can go through life, you know, being single and being, you know, and, and never, never get any of this till we actually get in relationship. And then these triggers start. And then we've got to, to, to look at ourselves because we, you know, we, blaming the other person doesn't really get us anywhere. It doesn't, but it sure fills up a lot of therapy sessions if the therapist is willing to tolerate it. You know, like, and, you know, I've, I always like will tell, I try to tell my clients, like, no offense. I mean, we can talk about your husband or wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or even your ex all, all session long. I don't think it's going to help them. Yeah. And you're paying money and time, your time. And like, let's help the people here in the room. Good point. One hundred percent. But I think, and I actually knew a therapist years ago who would only meet with people with someone else, like either in a romantic relationship or sibling or something, because you because uh, you don't really learn about yourself really, and except in relation with others. I mean, yes, you can learn some, but that's why I think you know true intimacy and true self understanding is not on the mountaintop in communion with God or in you know alone in a yoga studio. It's in the messiness of a crowded yoga studio where you have to deal with everybody else's stuff too, or in the messiness of relationships. Because, and one of the reasons for that is we learn how to be in relation with others from our first relationship, from our caregiver. That's what love feels like. That's where we, we don't even know. They're not saying, okay, cutie pie, I'm going to teach you how to love, be loved. They're not saying that. They're showing up as they show up. Mm-hmm. Good, bad, or indifferent. And that's where I learned the feeling of love. That's where I feel secure. I feel anxious. And that's what love feels like. And then the next place that I really experience that level of connection and think about what a mom does with a baby, right? Like she can bend over and look in its eyes as she's changing it on the table and the eyes light up. The child feels seen. It's so beautiful when it happens. And when a, you know, it's not just the mom, but that's, we still feel like that. When someone really sees us, you know, I, I got a beautiful email from a colleague today who reached out to me. He saw me in a presentation I made to his school last week, and he saw me and he wrote to me. It brought me to tears because I felt that feeling of being seen authentically, not judgy, but like equal. And so when a mother does that to a child, the child like takes that in and feels and develops their sense of worth from being looked at like that. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, when, a, when the baby's crying, the mom or the parent picks it up and holds it, and the baby calms down, it calms their nervous system. That's co-regulating. And so th- that's what we want, like in our romantic relationships, like at the end of the day, I come in at, from home and I'm like, oh my God, I had the worst interview on a podcast ever. I bombed it. I feel terrible. I'm such a loser, whatever. And my partner comes and gives me a hug and I'm like, ah, right? Like, that's the same thing the mom did to the child that we do for our romantic partners 
we co-regulate. And so because it, what happens is it act being in relationship like that activates our stuff. Our friendships will a little, but romantic relationships are the most, are the thing that most replicates that first place where we learned it. So we learn how to handle love and things like that. But when it gets really close, all that stuff from before starts to come out. Like our, this person could crush my heart. Wow. That's terrifying. Yeah. Well, so, so you're saying that really being seen is one of, one of the beautiful, healthy forms of intimacy that keeps people t- together, right? It's what we all want, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Right? The baby wants it. The toddler who like is at the playground and falls and looks to see if his mom is watching before he bursts out crying. Like, you know, the, the, the kid who runs home in elementary school with the spelling, the good grade and wants to put on the refrigerator the teen, you know, the, the moody teenager who decides to go, I don't know what they do now, but go goth. That's what they did in my time, right? Like, or go, go different. I'm goth. What's that? I am goth. I do goth stuff. I just had to, I just had to get that in there. Okay, fine. So well, they, they, they go Perfect goth. Thank you. <laughs> yes. No, perfect goth. They do something to be seen. That's what they're doing. Even the rebellion is often a way to be seen. And then in our adult lives, whether it's through being desired by someone sexually or like romantically, that's what we want to be seen. It feels so, it feels good when you notice someone checking you out, right? I and mean, who would say not? Even in our work life, I want to, whether it's monetarily being shown that we're seen or a promotion or a boss saying, wow, you did an amazing job. Our whole life, you want it. And, and then there's a special weight, though, that the person that we co regulate with when they see us, there's a special power to that. Dale, I'm I'm wondering about because I'm I'm hearing you know um, Gary all the reflections of just the it's hard to say it back in a simpler sentence but just how we reflect the intimacy we have with ourselves and Dale I'm wondering how are how are you seeing this in your work right now mm-hmm. are you noticing any patterns with your clients like how is what he's saying connecting to like what you're directly seeing in and I know we're speaking confidentially mm. in a good way about that but just are you noticing any patterns kind of connecting to what he's saying yeah um you know, i do feel that you know uh, the reasons people come to me are because there there is interfering or obstacles with being seen being able to support one another there, there's something getting in the way of that. And usually it's what you're talking about. It's parts of themselves that is not being able to be, that's not accepted, really. That's not accepted in the relationship. So like you, I sit with people and, and, and I'm compassionate with what they're experiencing. If it's shame, mm-hmm. um, if it's, turning away from parts of themselves and help them accept mm-hmm. what they will make, you know, what will make their relationship better. So it's very, it's similar to what you do. And with couples, mm-hmm. it's getting each other to see those parts and accept those parts that they're not accepting, that they're rejecting or turning away from. It's kind of like, you know, wanting to be loved for the beautiful and the ugly parts of ourselves. And everybody wants it, but we're also terrified about it, I think, including me. It's scary. It's scary because we've all been hurt. And we don't, we, again, those pro- talking about those protectors that come to, to save us. And they're often very maladaptive because they were formed when we were young. So those protectors push people away or distract us from what's really true. Like you, I help people kind of get to the bottom of all those beliefs and f- emotions mm-hmm. and thoughts that are, are keeping them from having the true intimacy mm-hmm. that they want. And I, and I also work with people who are repairing after betrayal. Yeah. And, I, and I would love to get to that because you, you, know, you know so much about this. Yeah. You know, working with that, that repair for example, you know, I have a couple now that is experiencing this. And of course, the one who was betrayed has leverage now in the relationship. And the one who was the betrayer has tremendous guilt. And they are trying to work through this. They want 
to to stay together. They want to be together, but it's it's how, right? How do we? How do you support couples to work through this so they actually can regain trust? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's such beautiful work that you do. I love working with couples where there's been betrayal. I, that sounds weird, but uh, I mean, I think it sounds a little like I'm not rooting for betrayal. Let's just be clear. But I love working with them because I see and feel the pain they're in and I know it. Having been on both sides of that equation, exactly what we talked about, like a couple co-regulates itself. Right. And that, that's your person. That's the person that, like I said, when they, you come in after a bad day and they give you a hug and they can actually help you just like, ah, and they can also annoy you more than anybody else. But they, they're like your emotional safety net in the world. When somebody betrays their that other half, that person who was supposed to be your safest person is now the most dangerous person because you can't rely on them anymore. They've hurt you more than worse than a stranger has. Many betrayed partners where there was, let's say, betrayal sexually I think it's like 80 something percent say that the broken trust is more painful than the sexual infidelity. They're both painful, of course, but it's that broken trust. Like, and there's so many layers to the, to that betrayal wound. So when they come into the office, my heart, first of all, hurts for them because they're in pain right now. But I also know they're going to probably be pain for a couple of years. It'll get better, but it'll be, it's hard. And depending where they're at in the process, the person who's been betrayed it's such a deep wound that their brain and their nervous system are not going to relax for somewhere between 18 to 24 months. Because again, like they can't trust the person who was there to calm them down. And they don't trust themselves now. They lost trust for themselves because it's like, I should have seen it or I did see it, but I ignored it because it was too scary to look at. They'll, maybe later they'll say that. but So they, they don't trust their own gut. And now because they can't trust that person, they don't trust, like nothing feels safe. And so they it's almost like the, f- the floor fell out from under them and they don't, they can't get their footing. So they're really struggling. It's like, to me, it's one of the deepest wounds. And I want to just differentiate for a second. Also, mm-hmm. like any betrayal is betrayal, but there's probably a marked difference between and how we treat it is different too of infidelity. It's all infidelity, let's say, but somebody has one affair or goes to Vegas with a bunch of friends and does something stupid it's hurtful it's painful and that has its own treatment and repair but when it's much more systematic and extensive um which is what we get in our practice both there was this person like the whole it wasn't like how could you do that it's more like who are you you know like if you had an affair it's like how could you do that you hurt me i don't know you really or how could you do that indiscretion but when it's like, oh, crap, I'm slowly unraveling that our entire relationship, you've been someone else. And now I'm finding that if I really wait and I hear, I'm finding out that your whole, every relationship you've been in has probably been like that. That's a whole different situation. And in that situation, the level of betrayal is even deeper. Mm. Mm. Because in order to cover up mm-hmm. for on both of them, right, like in order to cover up to keep it going – there's lying, gaslighting, misdirection to keep the secret. Oh. And what that does is that takes that person who, who gets betrayed, who probably has a gut reaction, something feels off. Wow. And a lot of times couples come to therapy because something feels off and that person's trying to fix it. Let's, we don't feel connected. You feel angry with me all the time. You feel distant. What am I doing wrong? What are you doing? Like some version, I'll blame me or I'll blame you or I'll go back and forth but they're missing some key information. And so then they learn to not listen to their own gut because the other person's like, what are you talking about? Everything's fine. Oh, you're overreacting. You're too emotional. You're too needy, especially being told to women who get labeled with those things, you know, historically. Um, And so then the woman internalizes it. Sorry. Yeah. You know, well, you know, what's so interesting about what you're saying is I'm, I'm realizing that, betrayal could could also be a way of not being authentic oh 100 percent. of not of, of of yeah that just kind of i just put that together right like that there's another way of avoiding true intimacy yeah because i think if i have secrets then there's a wall right like yeah. if i hold my, like if i have a, every secret's a wall then i can't you can't really see me for sure and so it's just a step further back and further back every 
every secret. And so, especially like at that level, like if I have a secret that I don't know, you know, I really like Taylor Swift, but I don't want to say it out loud because my partner will judge me or something. Like maybe that's not a huge block of intimacy and you know it's permeable or whatever. Um, but if I have a secret like um, I don't know, like infidelity, I can't. You, I'm not. I'm not letting you see into me. And so then we can't fully be authentic and close. You're 100 percent right. It it also goes kind of both ways in the way of how it's not being authentic with the partner who's getting betrayed and the person who is betraying isn't being authentic with themselves as in a way by not confronting a betrayal, they're seeking authenticity outside of that relationship, right? So it kind of goes both ways to where it's just like everyone's in it. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. You know, you have to deceive yourself on some level before you can deceive someone else also, like self-deception. So that's where the inauthenticity happens. Like, even if it's at the, like, I know I'm doing this, it's not that bad. Or I can also not be honest with myself because a lot of the clients that come into my office are actually, even the ones who have betrayed and hurt someone else, they're not, they're, they're like jerks. I mean, the actions they've done hurt their partner tremendously. But if you look at them without this piece, they are thoughtful. They are members of their community. They coach their kids team that, you know, often with, you know, let's say those friends of the betrayed spouse is like, Oh, your partner's so wonderful. So thought, which is double the wound, but they are, um, they're not really, they're having almost like a split experience. And when they come into my office, I believe them because I'll ask them, or, the, or they'll, it usually comes out quick. Like, I believe them, they still love their partner. Even though they've done things that all of us would probably say don't really qualify as a loving act. Like, it's not, you don't show your spouse love by sleeping with their friends. Not a way to show love. But when I explain, when we understand how a, a, a brain that has been used to hiding from itself can also hide from others. They're so used to it from probably from childhood, a lifetime of compartmentalizing and, you know, denial, forms of denial that they can hold these two truths and they feel them. I love my spouse or partner and I can do these things. It's crazy. And the person who doesn't have a brain like that it has the look like you just made down, which is like, whoa, what? But it takes a while, a long while to understand that this person's brain has neural pathways that have developed to create self-deception. Mm-hmm. And so that, therefore, even when a person says, man, I, I can't believe what I've done. I don't want to do it again. I don't want to have secrets. I have to prep them and their partners that they're going to lie again. Because you they've developed neural pathways, probably, like I said, from childhood, but if not long enough that they're going to, they're going to lie even when they don't want to lie. Cause they're so used to hiding information, keeping things separate, even then that the impact of that is also it creates distance. So we usually create an agreement that when they realize they've been dishonest, they have to come forward and that helps to repair trust. So I want to keep this conversation going and I want to touch back on repair after we take a short break. back from the short break and we're all still here having a conversation even on our break so dale did you want to start us off kind of with what we were just talking about yeah yeah it's it's intriguing what you're saying gary about that the person who has the affair that's really split off from him or herself Mm -hmm. and i'm hearing that there's kind of a spectrum of um betrayal intensity, if you will, and maybe emotional, having an emotional fear might be at one end of the spectrum and then, you know, long-term 
really dishonest behaviors at the other end and and everything in between and and so maybe you can talk a little bit about what causes people what's the schism what's the break in in relate in intimacy that causes people to to betray another okay yeah i would love to um i just want to say to i really want to be clear in the talk before the break and whatever I'm going to say now also in talking about understanding how somebody does something or why they might do it, it's not saying it's okay. So in saying like someone's brain learned, developed to compartmentalize and hold secrets doesn't mean that I'm saying that that's okay. And it's like not a big deal. And they should get up. Like we're accountable for our behaviors independent of the understanding of why we do them. And so I really want to be clear, especially if there's people listening who've been really horrifically harmed. Like there is, it's one of the worst pains that a person can experience. And so I may be explaining and what the person who did the harm, what their experience is. And I think it's valuable to like, the only way to help them heal is to understand it, but it's not to excuse it. And it's not to remove accountability from them. So I really, it's really important. Right. Thank you for that clarity. That's, that's great. Yeah. Um, I guess there is, in, in a sense, there is a spectrum, but I think about it, to me, it's le- the spectrum isn't sex or not sex, sex or emotions. I, I don't know. I don't think, at least I don't think of it in that context. Like in a, it's only an emotional affair. I think an emotional affair can be more damaging than having, you know, a, a one night stand sexually, right? Like the length of it, the emotional piece. In fact, many people who've experienced betrayal, the parts that are harmful the, the most are the emotional connections made, not sexual. I'm not minimizing the sexual hurt, but um, they're more hurt. Like, it, did you have feelings for this person? You saw them repeatedly versus like you went to a bunch of, you know, sex workers or one night stands where there was less emotion involved. It's the feeling. It's like the heart part. So I don't, I don't think of it in that context. I think emotional affairs can be devastating and are devastating because the betrayal is there. It's not about like where you stick your body parts as much as I thought I could trust you. And I thought we were a team. Mm-hmm. It's very similar in some ways to veterans who have had trauma or wounded and then feel betrayed by their country. Not really, you know, all the lip service we do to like, thank you for your service and the big salute to the service at football games. But yet when they come back and they need help and they're like getting sometimes second rate help, or they're not getting really support that they need for their PTSD symptoms. Um, they feel a similar sense of betrayal, even though there's nothing, you know, nothing sexual there. So. Yeah. And it almost feels like we need to have you back because we didn't really get to repair, which is, you know, the second half of this. And then, you know, and then how do couples deal with the aftermath? Like, do they create agreements? How do that, how does that trust come back into a relationship? And that could be, you know, another topic really. Yeah. That, that's a big one. Yeah. Um, I would just say it is possible that they both have to want to work at it. And it sometimes takes a while to get them to get one on both on board because sometimes the person who's been caught is still in denial or minimizing or feels shame or defensive and they don't want to deal with it. Or um, they have, you have to bust through part of one of your questions was like, what leads someone to do it? And I think it's a lot of, it's enti- it's a form of entitlement. Mm. So you have to bust that down. Um, and sometimes the person who's been betrayed doesn't want to do more work because they're like, what work do I have to do? I've been harmed. And they don't have to do work in terms of like, oh, they were bad or wrong or something's wrong with them. Not at all. Someone hurt them. But they do need support in order to heal. Mm. Because an un, an untend, a wound not tended to isn't going to heal. You know, like I said before, you don't trust your partner. You don't trust yourself. You don't trust society. You don't feel, you feel wounded as a woman or a man, like your sexuality, your attractiveness, your value. If you have any pre-existing wounds that about worthiness, like, how it hits that really deep. So wow. I, I always, when we get a couple in, what we do to create that repair is we want to get them both into individual therapy. So they have their own support. We try to get them both into group therapy because 
one's learning to live their life without some behavior they may have had their entire adult life, like the secrecy, dishonesty, entitlement, sex, if it's compulsive. And the other person is often the person betrayed is so isolated because if they're considering staying in the relationship, they don't want to tell everybody because that'll ruin that all their support systems opinion of their person. And they're also scared. Like all my friends are going to say, kick him to the curb. He's a piece of dirt, all this stuff. And maybe they're not there. And who says they should be? It's their life, not their friends. But so they often are so isolated. So to put them in a group with other people, they can talk about this. And, you know, I've had people who's experienced betrayal talk about going out with another couple and the other wife, let's say, is complaining about, my husband's such a jerk. Can you believe it? Like he never makes the beds and puts the throw pillows on the top of the bed. Anymore. And like this woman sitting there thinking, what the hell? My husband just did, drained our bank account and did all this. Other. So then they feel like, and they can't tell their friends. So they feel disconnected. So getting them in a room or on screen with other people reduces the shame and helps them get support. They don't need help to be different. They just need support. And eventually sometimes, you know, some places don't do couples counseling at this point because it's so volatile. I feel we do because they need, they don't, they're not going to work on communication skills. They're going to work on crisis management because they're both trying to figure out how to live their life without the support. One person is angry. So they don't, you know, they don't have that person. The other person is scared. It's like they need a lot of support. Yeah. And it takes time and you need to get the behavior stopped. You need to get the healing started in each person and learn how to share more honestly and build that. And the end result, only the end result, is to learn how to have healthy intimacy and eventually healthy sexuality too. That's, that's really good. And so in terms of, you know, statistics, do you see more? I mean, you've probably you've been doing this for a long time. What are the, um, is there, are there more couples doing this, less couples? What are the patterns you're seeing in um, with couples and maybe even not only in betrayal, but just with couples, what, what kind of patterns do you see in relationships that have changed or are occurring now? That's a great question. Um, Well, first of all, I'll say we see all types of couples that are struggling with this, whether it's, you know, the traditional probably percentage wise is a, a man and a woman, heterosexual couple where there's been betrayal by the man to the woman, but we see it in the opposite way, which has its own version of shame for a man who's been cheated on, right? Like that sense of worth. We see it with same sex uh, couples where both are men or both are women, or, you know, we, I even, we even see it in polyamorous couples. So it's all, it's really not unique to any one type even though statistically you're going to just cause society, I think is a certain way it's statistically higher with heterosexual couples where it's the man who's done the betraying. Um, what other, I'm still not a statistics guy. I'm a feelings guy mostly, but I would say that um, the concept of betrayal trauma has only been around for romantic. It started with betrayal from a parent to a child written by woman, Jennifer Freud wrote about it in the nineties. And I think 2005, it got applied because of what we talked about, the similarity between the attachment from a romantic partner and the attachment parent-child. Um, it became a concept about betrayal in, within a romantic relationship. And I would say that, it, and also sex addiction or compulsive sexuality, celebrities who've, ha- who've had bad behavior and hidden behind going to rehab haven't done a good PR thing for bad behavior sexually so some people feel it's just like oh it's an excuse and things like that and i'm sure people do use it as an excuse but i see men and women who lives have been crushed by it and don't want to do it and don't know how to change it i would say that there's more and more resources for both but because because statistically it's the man who does it the betraying more there are more resources for a male oriented issue like in all of society than the female oriented issue, right? Like we, I don't, I don't need to mansplain that to you two ladies. Do I like, you know, <laughs> right. So there's 50 mutual support groups, meetings a week, probably in New York city for men and women, but the, the addiction or compulsivity side of that dynamic in a couple, there's one, maybe two in all of New York city for the betrayed partner side. Wow. 
So it's such, because so much focus gets put on the person who did the betraying and because there's so much shame and other things going on for the person who was betrayed, there's really not enough support and resources for them. And I really, to me, that's something that's slowly changing. Mm -hmm. We have, I have a client who, um, she's an actress. Her husband got, you know, betrayed her. She did a one woman play several years later. She wrote herself um, about her experience which was now made into a movie that will hopefully get released soon. It's, it's been a lot of different things. Mm. And um, we just did a talk back panel after showing the movie last week or two weeks ago and the response. And also when we had the play, she had the play in New York it was so powerful that people saw women, men who've been betrayed or who, who showed the wide range of emotions, the messiness and the humanness of it. I think when something like that comes out, it's called accidentally brave. And you just did, didn't you just do a women's group? Was it with women who have been betrayed or not necessarily? Um, this one had a mix. We have, um, we have at our practice a couple, uh, not like three groups that meet weekly for betrayed partners that are support groups. But this was a group more like uh, an intro to intimacy. And some of the women shared that they've experienced betrayal and they're trying to work through that. But, um, you know, I think whether it's betrayal or, Betrayal is a hard one. Like my heart just hurts. And for these men and women, and the one thing I would say to them, if they're listening here mm -hmm. is to get help. Mm. Don't suffer alone, you know, whether it's with us or someone else. And if it's not us, I'll find someone else for you, but, and make sure whoever you're working with gets it. Mm -hmm. Because another thing that can happen is that betrayed partners sometimes get treated by therapists or clergy or coaches as, well, if you just did this a little better, then he wouldn't have slept with your entire community. Wow. You know, like if you had done the dishes more or you didn't nag him as much, like it sounds, I'm exaggerating it, but well, yeah. they like, well, let's look at, there's two sides to every relationship. And maybe that's how we deal with infidelity, which arises within a relationship. That's why I'm saying there's different treatments, right. but when there's something that's so systematic and it's so extensive and there's dishonesty and gaslighting, mm. The fact that like she doesn't bring me coffee every morning with a smile doesn't justify then I'm going to like trample on her heart. Wow. So I would just say is like find a resource and a support system that gets what you're going through. Right. Yeah. Wow. Gary, thank you so much. We, we have to we have to have you back because we didn't get to everything. There is so much. I would be more than happy to. There's so much, and we really appreciate all that you shared today. It's my pleasure. I would be happy to come back. I could talk about this for hours, and I so appreciate your openness mm -hmm. and also, you know, and your openness too, Sunny, and also your expressions as I'm saying things like, you know, like, mm -hmm. like I just really appreciate it. So thank you both. Thank you, Gary. Could you tell us where people can find your work, please? Oh, sure. Um, please reach out to us. We're intimacyrecovery.com. It's a website. We're licensed. We have therapists licensed in many states. So it's not just if you're in New York. We also have some things which are psychoeducational, like groups online that you don't have to be a resident of the same state as a therapist because it's not therapy. My email, which anyone listening is welcome to email me personally uh, for a question or or like support or a referral is Gary Katz. That's my name. K G A R Y K A T Z at intimacyrecovery.com, Gary Cass at intimacyrecovery.com. And, um, you know, I open, I welcome any feedback, but I also welcome if someone needs direction to find support, whether it's us or not, I just want both uh, people struggling with either side of the equations we talked about or any form of struggles with intimacy. We didn't even get to like the sex therapy part of intimacy. Please reach out. We will. We will next time. Part two is coming. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. If you would like to join the conversation, please email Dale and I questions at sunny.nwrpodcast at gmail.com relating to anything dating and relationships. Please tune in with us every time we upload for more integrative conversations relating to the self and other. If you are interested in Dale Sprague's relationship coaching, please email her at dale at creativecorecoaching.com for private coaching sessions. 
Don't forget to follow our Instagram and Facebook at New Wave Relationships Podcast. If you would like to keep in touch with Gary, feel free to check out his website at intimacyrecovery.com or intimacyrecovery on Instagram. Gary has a retreat coming up for betrayed partners in Cancun from March 8th to March 17th. At this retreat, you will receive 10 days of individual and group therapy accompanied by an Ibogaine treatment. You can also find Gary at the Center for Intimacy Recovery in New York City. We hope you join us next time for New Wave Relationships.